We're continuing on in our series in Acts. So if you want to open your Bibles, Acts chapter 5. We're going to read a a good-sized chunk, but we want the whole piece of the narrative from this bit. Starting at verse 12. Thank you. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them, on any of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that's the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple. The whole, whole message of, uh, of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prisoners on house for them to be brought. Or to the prison house, sorry. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the door. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them so that uh, as to what would, would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross or on a tree. He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of those, these things. So, so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined uh, up with him, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in those days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God... You will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went away 
on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they've been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. It's a wonderful passage that demonstrates the boldness, the determination and the passion of the apostles. Firstly, we see how God was using them, especially Peter, to bring salvation, healing and deliverance to many in Jerusalem. Secondly, we have the narrative of their arrest and the angelic rescue. And then thirdly, we have the trial and the wisdom of Gamaliel, which resulted in them being able to continue their work, albeit with very sore backs. So we'll consider these three parts of the narrative in turn. First of all, signs and wonders. In verses 12 to 16, we hear how the apostles were performing many signs and wonders among the people. We're not told exactly what those signs and wonders were. Um, But from verse 15, we can assume that there were probably healings and deliverances of various kinds. We know from verse 12 that their meeting point was in public. They used to meet each day in the colonnade of Solomon in this area of the temple that was a passing through place on your way into the inner parts of the temple. And of course, you'll remember from a few weeks ago that this is where Peter and John were with the man who had been healed at the beautiful gate. Remember, silver and gold have I none, but such as I give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And they went straight into the the colonnade of, of Solomon at that point. So it was a place that the apostles used both as a gathering point and also as a space in which they could make known the gospel and enact healings. It was a public space. It was an area that lots of people came through. So it was a fabulous opportunity to make known who Jesus was and is. Verse 13 shows us something about the tension in Jerusalem at this time, which resulted in the arrest of the apostles. On the one hand, we're told nobody dared to join them to this new sect. Perhaps some of them had heard about what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. I think if people dropped down dead in the meeting, I think you might be reluctant to join, join that group. On the other hand, they were held in high honor by the people. Despite, and despite this uncertainty, many were joining this burgeoning group. It was growing phenomenally at a fantastic rate. It was getting bigger and bigger. How they all fitted in the colonnade of the temple, I've no idea, but they did. And there were thousands of them by this stage. And then verse 15. To such an extent that even they even carried the sick out onto the streets, laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. That's amazing. People bought out their sick and laid them in the streets so that as Peter passed, that shadow might, might fall on them and they might be healed. Incredible. Such was the power of the spirit that was working through Peter at this time that they even expected his shadow to heal people. And this is reminiscent of the woman With the issue of blood, touching the edge of Jesus' garment. If I could just touch the edge of his garment, I'll be healed. People were reaching out in faith to the God of healing who was beyond all that the apostles were preaching, just as they reached out to Jesus. Also, the people were flocking, we're told, from the countryside around about. They were bringing their sick and their demonized with them in the hope that they too might be healed. Clearly, the news about this Jesus sect was spreading beyond the city. At the end of verse 16 is an almost throwaway comment by Luke. And all of them were healed. 
Such was the power of the Spirit that was working through these men. All who came to them, all who reached out, all who stepped out in faith to receive healing were healed. What an amazing experience. What an amazing environment it must have been at that time. This kind of ministry had not been seen since Jesus had come to Jerusalem. And now the the apostles were doing the same thing in Jesus' name. And not just in the temple, but also in the streets of Jerusalem. The early church was experiencing unprecedented blessing. However, it was still a Jerusalem-based church. And had not yet begun to fulfill the rest of Jesus' instructions in Acts 1. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world, at the earth. At this stage, they were in this place of phenomenal blessing. But perhaps they'd lost sight of the bigger picture. God was going to have to do something to shake them out, up and to send them out. And this is something we begin to see in the remainder of the chapter. It's often when we're in the place of the greatest blessing that we can lose sight of the mission. Let's put up three booths, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. At the transfiguration, Peter wanted to stay on the mountaintop, but Jesus knew that that was not his mission. And he went straight from the Mount of Transfiguration all the way to the cross in Jerusalem. God does bring us into seasons of blessing. And we should enjoy them while they last. However, it's often often in the difficult times that we grow most. And the early church had to go through persecution in order to be pushed to fulfill its mission. It had to be shaken and made uncomfortable in order to go. And we must never lose sight of our calling in the time of blessing and should embrace what God is doing in the good times and in the hard times in order to fulfill what he's given us to do. As Matt Redman wrote, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Last week, someone shared with me that they believed that the church, not just this church, but the church in this country, is about to go through a time of shaking. And I would not be at all surprised, since I believe the church has become flabby and complacent and full of experience, Jesus. But as the writer to the Hebrew says, the shaking is so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And if we experience a shaking, know that God is doing it to wake us up and to get us back on track with fulfilling the plan of God for our generation. So this brings us to the arrest and the release, the angelic rescue. And this scene is, is, is almost comedic. It begins with the jealousy of the Sadducees, who notice the success of the apostles and their ministry. And so they have the apostles arrested and put in jail. And then they, they, they do it overnight because they want to get the whole of the Sanhedrin together the next morning. They want to get everybody in board in, in condemning these men and dealing with them. All the religious leaders of, of Israel, including scribes, Pharisees, priests, teachers of the law, they want these upstarts dealt with properly. However, during the night, an angel comes and releases the apostles while the guards are still guarding the doors. And he marches them out, leaving the doors of those cells locked. Quite how that happened, we have no idea. It was a miraculous rescue. 
The angel then tells them to go back to where they've been arrested and to carry on preaching. So they suddenly find themselves in the temple preaching to people who are coming at dawn when everyone thought they were still in prison. Meanwhile, the next morning, the priests start to assemble in their Sanhedrin. And then they send to the jail for the apostles. And on arriving at the jail, they find no apostles present. And the captain of the guard is left scratching his head. I know I put them in there some last night. I know they were there when I left. Where could they have gone? And suddenly a messenger arrives. And he's tracked down the apostles and tells everyone that they're back in the temple preaching. And the captain of the guard sees a chance to redeem himself and goes and arrests them a second time. And after this farce, the trial can now begin. So what about the trial itself? Well, the reason for the trial is stated by the high priest as being the fact that the apostles did not heed the previous warning given them in verse chapter 14, four, sorry, chapter 4, verse 18, to stop telling people about Jesus. That's what they've been commanded to do. And they wouldn't. They refused to stop telling people about Jesus. Jesus, what Jesus had done, what Jesus had achieved, the change that he'd made in their lives, what they had seen in terms of his resurrection, they could not keep silent about even at the risk of running foul of the authorities. In fact, the opposite had happened, and the apostles, we're told, had filled Jerusalem with your teachings. And they'd put the blame for Jesus' death squarely at the door of the priests. Peter's response? We must obey God rather than men. Despite the warnings of the priests, Peter was in no doubt as to where their chief loyalties must lie. Sometimes in the workplace or in other situations, we may be asked to bend the rules or may be tempted to keep quiet when we see injustice or offence being propagated. At such times, we must remember where our true loyalties lie. We must obey God rather than men. Sometimes it's difficult, but to whom ultimately are we accountable? Peter goes on to affirm once more the resurrection of Jesus, which the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had brought about. And then he accuses the, the priests of being guilty of the death of Jesus. Notice the phrase he uses, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. That's important. There's a double reference here. Firstly, it's a reminder of the fact that the priests had used the Romans to bring about the death of Jesus by having him condemned as a rebel a revolutionary who wanted to be king. But secondly, and this more importantly, there is a reference back to the law. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 says this. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him in the same day. For he who is hanged on a tree is cursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. In other words, Peter is affirming that they carried out the law required for the worst criminals by putting Jesus on a tree. But God exalted him to his own right hand, Peter goes on, thus vindicating him completely. As Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 13 to 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
Jesus became a curse for us. To set us free from the power of sin and death. To bring us into the fullness of the blessing of God. And it's this that Peter is affirming to the priest through using this phrase. Jesus became a curse that we might receive the blessing. Jesus was accursed by God when he hung on the tree on our behalf that we might come into the fullness of all that God has for us. And Peter affirms it before these priests. Unfortunately, Peter's still not quite grasped that salvation is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, as he limits salvation just to Israel in that verse. However, he affirms that what uh, they have been doing by the power of the Spirit has been to witness to the salvation that God has made available through Jesus. What's the reaction of the audience? What the priests and the, 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 the Sadducees and all the rest of them, how, is, how do they react? It says they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Not only did Peter, had Peter affirm that salvation is no longer in their hands, i.e. it's not the, 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 the jurisdiction of the priest to give salvation, but that... Uh, through the t- i.e. through the temple rituals that they performed, but also that they were responsible for the murder of God's Messiah. At this moment in the narrative, you can feel the tensions in the room beginning to rise. Here are these priests, these Sadducees, who are supposed to be the spiritual rulers of Israel, and Peter's saying, you're not the ones who are going to dispense God's salvation anymore. In fact, you're the ones who murdered God's Messiah. You can see why they might be getting a little bit furious. He actually accuses them of working against the God of Israel. And into this tension, into this maelstrom, comes a voice of reason. A Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel speaks up. And this is the first time we've encountered the Pharisees in the book of Acts. Although they received quite an airing in the book of Luke. However, even this was not all bad. We often think that they're constantly seen in a bad light, but they're not always. Um, Although resisting his teaching, Pharisees still gathered to hear Jesus and repeatedly invited him to their homes for dinner. Also, on one occasion, some Pharisees warned Jesus of Herod, Herod Antipas's plot to kill him. And during the final days of the conflict leading to Jesus' death, they dropped out of the picture while the spotlight fell on the murderous designs of the Sadducean chief priests, elders, and scribes. So who was this Gamaliel? Well, firstly, he's the grandson of Hillel the Elder. Anyone tell me who Hillel the Elder is? Go on then. That's right. There were two schools of thought in Jewish, thought, Jewish thinking. One of them was the school of Hillel, who was Gamaliel's grandfather. So it was a very important grandfather that he had, and he carried the same kind of authority within the, the nation of Israel. He's identified in the Talmud as bearing the titles Prince and our Master, because he was the president of the great Sanhedrin. He was the one actually in charge here, and he kept his counsel until this moment. He was a senior within the role, and he had a great reputation. In fact, after he died, somebody said, since Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, there's been no more reverence for the law, and purity and piety have died out at the same time. He was held with great 
reverence and great awe because he was the one who brought the voice of reason but also the voice of the Lord into the situation. So when this senior member of the Sanhedrin speaks, everyone listens. And essentially he reminds them of the council of uh, the rest of the council of their recent past and how they'd allowed the Romans to deal with any would-be messianic movements. And then he brings an appropriate and reasoned judgment. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action of men is to be overthrown, uh, uh, is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them or else you may be found fighting against God. Essentially, this is exactly what Peter's been telling them, that they've already been doing. But when it comes from this man, Gamaliel, everyone respects this warning and, and, it, and heeds it. Again, in almost a throwaway comment, Luke tells us that after Gamaliel had spoken, they called the apostles in and had them flogged before telling them to shut up again. A flogging, of course, was what Jesus had received before his crucifixion. However, a Roman flogging was a lot more brutal than a Jewish one. Essentially, a Jewish flogging consisted of up to 39 lashes to the back with a leather whip, sometimes with bits of bone in it. To say the least, it would have been painful. They were flogged, all of them. What was the response of the apostles? They rejoiced. That they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace to the name. I don't think that would have been my reaction in the circumstances. Thank you, Lord, that you've given me a good flogging today. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what grace of God will be given when we suffer or when people suffer such brutal persecution. And throughout church history, right Up to the present day, believers have suffered immense tortures for their faith. Jesus told us that it would ever be thus. Just because it hasn't happened here for a few hundred years doesn't mean it won't in the future. Under such circumstances, all of us will face a choice to stand up for our faith or to deny Jesus. At the moment, the persecution of Christians in this country is subtle. It consists of marginalizing us, of dismissing our opinions or of painting us in a bad light. This can be difficult, particularly when we're dealt with prejudicially. However, when we endure such difficulties, we stand with the great procession of those believers who have gone before us, and those around the world who today are suffering for their faith, whether in China, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Africa, India, or elsewhere. We stand united with the Church of Jesus Christ when we endure hardships in his name. On returning to their places of residence, they didn't slink away and pretend that they'd learned their lesson. They just kept on going. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They were relentless in their preaching and teaching. They wanted everyone in Jerusalem to know what they'd witnessed and the power of God to transform lives. So what was their message? That Jesus is the Messiah. And the whole gospel is summed up in that phrase. Jesus is not a dead prophet. He's not the leader of a rebel band against the Romans. He's not just a philosopher or a rabbi who came to show us a better way of living. 
He's not just a miracle worker or a challenger of the status quo. He is the Messiah. He is the one who fulfilled all prophecy. He is the one who came from God to bring God's salvation to all humanity. He is the one who came to put us right with God and to begin the process of restoration of all creation to the original divine intention. He is the one who came to save us from the consequences of our sins, to restore us to the image in which the first humans were created, the image of God himself. He came to bring about the kingdom of God to earth, and he's coming again to reign as king over all his creation. And all of this is summed up in this term, Messiah or Christ. And we are Christians today because we believe all of this is true. And so, in this passage, we see the example of the apostles in Acts. We're reminded that we have a job to do, like them, to make Jesus known. We're reminded that it may cost us something. It may lead to us being rejected, ignored, and even to suffer for his his sake. But it will also lead to the crown of life and to life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll conclude by affirming the truth once more. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the example of your apostles. But thank you, Lord God, that you have seen such as us and have you, you've rescued us and brought us into that place of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks and praise this morning. Amen. <laughs>